So this morning, as you um, saw there in Luke 13, and the section that we're going to deal with in 10 through 17, we're not really going to address the Sabbath, um, the Sabbath issue or controversy in the passage, partly because, on the one hand, we've dealt with the Sabbath controversy a couple of passes now through Luke's gospel. Um, and then the other piece, uh, mainly, is because I really want to draw our attention uh, to the powerful scene um, that is taking place here prior to or before the accusation of the breaking of the Sabbath takes place. I want us to notice, again, how our Lord treats this woman of disability. Um, a significant scene is here for our benefit, um, and then maybe next week we'll deal, we'll see as we move forward, maybe we'll deal with the Sabbath aspect of it as it leads us into verses 18 through 21 or so regarding the presence of the kingdom. But again, this morning what I'd really like to look at is that first portion there about our Lord dealing so graciously and warmly with this woman of deep infirmity and see what it speaks to us this morning um, by way of um, benefit to us. The first piece I want to kind of set up in this picture is, as you see there in verse 10, the significance of the synagogue. Now, historically speaking, and we've seen this, uh, that our Lord has been in the synagogues a few different times throughout the Gospel of Luke, but we have yet to really stop and pause and consider the role or the function and place of the synagogue during the time of his ministry. So, just by introduction... Historically speaking, synagogues became uh, a central piece to Israel's identity during their time in captivity in Babylon. So again, we won't do a huge Old Testament history lesson right now, but as you're aware of the time of captivity of Israel in Babylonian captivity, clearly they were without the opportunity to have the temple, to go to the temple, to experience the services of worship in the temple, and there was a need at that point for religious instruction and uh, a way to preserve their religious identity as a people. So you can imagine a dispersed people under captivity of another regime or another nation state, and their temple has been destroyed. They are without opportunity for worship. All of the command of the Old Testament to then teach your young, to explain to your young ones what these sacrifices mean, what this meal means, what this national observance means, in order to lead them toward hope and salvation is finding no context in the place of captivity. So during that point of captivity where you're kind of dispersed, there arises what is now, by the time we get to the ministry of Christ, a significant number of synagogues. So the synagogue is kind of that place of gathering where basic teaching would take place, basic explanation of Old Testament history, of them as the national people, of their religious distinctives, in order to preserve that national identity. Um, significantly, there are many who took up the teaching task were lay people outside the priesthood. Um, they would take up teaching opportunities, explanation opportunities in the synagogues. By the time of Christ's own ministry here in the first century, synagogues of what he's doing right now, where he's at in Luke 13... Synagogues were in such an important feature in first century Judaism that not a single town nor a village was without a synagogue. Look with me just briefly how significant this has been. Again, we haven't touched on the role of synagogues in Luke's gospel. It's not because we haven't come across them. 
Go back and see the significance of them beginning in chapter 4, if you would, just for a moment. The significance of the synagogue and the role of Israel at this point in time. For again, the teaching, the explanation, the transmission of the law of the Lord, um, for better or for worse, took place at the synagogues. And as I said to you, at this point in our Lord's own ministry, there is not a single town or a small pocket village that is without a synagogue. A major feature in our Lord's ministry. If you're in chapter 4, look at verses 14. We'll start at verse 14 and then just go 14 and 15. And again, this is the very beginning of our Lord's ministry. And where do things get kicked off? Or where does it get started? Verse 14, And Jesus returned and the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went throughout all the surrounding countryside. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Look down at verse 16. Again, so that's right there in Galilee. So one village, one small pocket of peoples, our Lord is there. And as you notice, verse 15, there, are not, there is not one synagogue, but there are multiple synagogues. My point why I'm belaboring this by review is just to see how significant, by the time we get to Luke 13, how significant what takes place this morning is in the synagogue. There's multiple synagogues in the small village of Galilee. Look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, as you recall, where he had been brought up. That's where he grew up, in Nazareth. And and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Look over as well at 431, right in this same area. He's now moving from Galilee to Nazareth, and now he's over in Capernaum. Again, as we looked at the the Gospel of Luke and the movement of Jesus in the first century, Capernaum was kind of like that home base for missionary endeavors. So he's moving from Galilee to where he was raised in Nazareth, and there are synagogues present in all of the villages. Now he's over in Capernaum in verse 31, a city of Galilee. So a neighboring community, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath yet again, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he possessed authority, and he was in the synagogue, right? There was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, he cried out, and then you go on from there, and Jesus interacts with him, but he is also once again located where? In Capernaum, in a synagogue. So again, there's multiple synagogues in Capernaum, Galilee, and Nazareth, So much so that one last point about the prominence of a synagogue and the importance of the religious life of Israel at this time in our Lord's ministry. One author concludes, historically speaking this way, he says, quote, at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. So now you're moving in our Lord's ministry from the first century to about 70 AD, if you recall. 70 AD, Jerusalem is ransacked, laid siege, and destroyed. By the time of 70 AD, this author concludes, that city had not fewer than 480 synagogues in the city of Jerusalem alone. This is a critical piece in the life of Israel, a foundational piece to Israel's religious life. That makes sense to us why our Lord is there, particularly speaking as we draw our attention this morning to Luke 13. What better place is there in the life of Israel, in the historical setting, 
in the ministry of our Lord, what better place is there then for our Lord to show up in order to, number one, correct the aberrant views that are being taught? Religious life and identity took place in the synagogue. Where do you think the Lord is going to go to correct and to confront? The synagogue. That's where people are receiving certain views. That's where legalism of a certain type is taking hold. That's where works righteousness is emerging. That's where division among religious classes and social classes is taking place. In the teaching ministries of the synagogue. Think about it. In 70 AD, 480 pockets of teaching are taking place in Jerusalem alone. What better place is there for our Lord to confront the aberrant teachings that are misleading and burdening the people of God and also to set in order the direct contrast, the pure teaching of the word of God? There is no better context for our Lord's ministry. And what takes place in Luke 13 than as you see there in verse 10? He is where? In the synagogue. Now, one thing that we know as we've gone through the ministry of our Lord to this point of Luke 13, he is not a nervous talker. He is not one who fills the void, who fills the space and keeps the conversation moving. He often, as we see him engaging with people, creates the awkward moment, heightens the tension in the room. You know, maybe you've had that experience, you're talking, you feel awkward and you feel like, I just got to keep rambling and keep filling the space because I just don't want to stop because I'm feeling super nervous and awkward with this person just staring at me. You're like, I, that's us, right? That, right? And he's the other moving and like, you know, kind of looking. And you're filling this void and you're filling the space. And he, he's letting the situation get awkward so that he can have command of the entire room. He's not looking to get out of something. He's looking to draw you into something. And this is exactly what we see him do here in the synagogue. He's not up there speaking and teaching and waxing eloquent in order to keep things spinning, in order to end on time and be out the door. He's here on purpose to confront, to create awkwardness, to draw you and your attention away from what doesn't matter, and directly upon what does matter. And if it's awkward, all the better. Because it probably would be. We tend, as the text will show, to devalue what he values. And to dismiss as insignificant what he finds absolutely significant. Notice how he is doing this. The first piece of the text, you'll notice, he is creating this moment that we're about to learn from in verse 10, in verse 10 by being in the act of teaching. So he's owning the room, as it were, as he is conducting his teaching ministry in verse 10. Look with me. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Just think for a moment about his teaching ministry and what it might have been like to be in the synagogue or in that kind of similar to this, somewhat a hall, a, a dedicated space. It wasn't like a cathedral, a, a dedicated space. That's why there could be 480 of them within Jerusalem. A dedicated space where you in this group, in this area, in this neighborhood goes to hear dedicated teaching. And here our Lord is in this small room conducting ministry of teaching of the word of God. It doesn't take much imagination for us to consider as far as the audience goes in the room, the people were 
spellbound by his teaching ministry. Think about it. They've been hearing rabbis, teachers. You know, again, not, not to be too embarrassing upon myself, but you recognize there's great preachers and, and random ones, even in our own age, right? Like, there's certain men that, that when they're speaking and preaching, people are spellbound. They're hearing it and they're moved by the way the person is delivering, by the way the person's speaking, why the analogies he's drawing. Audiences are spellbound. Take that in the same situation. They've had rabbis come in and out of there. They've had Pharisees come in and out of there. They've had different teachers come in and out of there. And they've learned and maybe they've taken something away here or there. But then here is our Lord. Do you think there was a significant difference in the teaching ministry? Of course there was. Think about the authority, the clarity, and the passion that the Lord taught as He spoke to them the Word of God. The room was dead silent in a good way. Look over at chapter 4 one more time, just briefly to see just where this is nothing new. We know this is the response of the crowd. Now, we see at the end of 13 and the end of our episode, the people are moved and, 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 and awestruck at the work of Jesus in our episode we're looking at this evening or this morning. But just draw your attention back to chapter 4. I covered it that he was at the synagogue already, right? But look at verse 22. Look at the response of the people. Again, what we must be thinking is taking place in chapter 13 as well in verse 10. He's in the synagogue teaching. What do you think the response of the room was? Verse 22. And all spoke well of him. And look at their responses to his exposition. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They marveled at what he said. They've heard this said before. Or they've heard that text. Look, what was it? What was this text out of Isaiah? They've heard it read before. But not like this. They marveled at what he was doing. Look down at verse 32 of that same kind of context, that same passage if you're in chapter 4. Just drop down to verse 32 of what we were looking at just a moment ago. Look at the response of the people now. So verse 31, he was in Capernaum as we already covered. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And what was the response of the people as he explained to them the word of the Lord? They were astonished at his teaching. Why? His word possessed a unique authority. So again, back in Luke 13 now, here in verse 10, he's creating this situation in the synagogue where he is in front. He is out there lecturing or preaching, expositing the word of God in the synagogue, synagogue on the Sabbath. Later in Luke, we know that folks are astonished and the room is moved. But later in Luke 24, verse 32, Luke will speak of our Lord's ministry of explaining the word of the Lord again. And it says this, verse 32, quote, they said to each other, do you, re do you remember the scene, Luke 24? They're on the road to Emmaus. Right? A village in Emmaus. And it's after the crucifixion. After the crucifixion, they're walking and they see this person who turns out to be the Lord. And they're telling the story of what took place. And our Lord says, well, what are you talking about? And they say, what are you? Do you live in a cave? Do you not know what took place today in Jerusalem? Are you the only one who doesn't know? And then he goes on to probe and to prod and to speak to them about the things that were supposed to take place. He explains to them the word of the Lord. You, you recall their responses in verse 32. After our Lord is removed from them, they look at each other as he was explaining to them the word of the Lord. They look at each other and they say this, did not our hearts 
burn within us. For, for any unknown reason, was it just, shouldn't our hearts should have burned within us just because he was there, because he was present, because he was walking with us? No, there's something specific about it. There's something specific about why their hearts burned within them. They go on to say it. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? About what? They go on to say, while he opened to us the scriptures. Again, the significance of this moment for the synagogue of verse 10. He was teaching. Did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road while he did what? Like he did in the synagogue. Opened to us the scriptures. I do want to press this point just a little bit further in our Lord's teaching ministry. And as we look at chapter 4 or you look at chapter 24 or you look here in 13... And we have to stop for a moment to consider the instrumental means or the importance of the instrumental means of the Word of God in our lives. That is, what do we mean by instrumental means but other than what the disciples described? If you're here thinking on this text with me this morning, let me ask you this question. How then, if we ask of the text, how then does a heart, how does your heart, how does my heart come to burn within or to yearn after godliness. Or maybe asked another way, from where does hope arise within our hearts? Where does it come from? David locates it in Psalm 119 like the disciples did themselves in Luke 24. It comes from the scriptures being opened. That's where our hearts begin to burn with a desire for godliness. That's the instrumental means toward a life of obedience. David says in Psalm 119.81, my soul longs for your salvation. But he goes on to describe why. Is it because I sit and I think and I meditate on it alone in isolation? Is it because I'm removed from the influence of the word and I just contemplate heavenly things? Do I just pick out hope from the air with no information other than my own psychology? David clearly says, no. My soul longs for your salvation. Why? Because I hope in your word. The picture that is painted for me of what salvation means is through the promises of your word. Not my own imaginations. My heart doesn't burn within for godliness and a life of obedience on its own. It must come from the scriptures being opened to me. The instrumental means of the word of God in your life as a believer cannot be overstated. We are a dependent people, dependent on the word of the Lord that comes to us from outside of us, that salvation and hope might be nourished and fed. That's why the disciples can say, oh, we should have known it was him. Why? Because the way he taught the scripture 
cause our hearts to burn. That's what's taking place in the synagogue this morning in Luke 13. So look carefully with me now at the center of the attention that's been covered. The synagogue is the center of the teaching ministry. The villages gather. How much more so in verse 10? They gather on the Sabbath. This is the day to hear from the word of the Lord. This is the day to hear instruction from the law. And there's no other teacher than the greatest of all teachers standing there in this synagogue explaining the hope, the promises, the law, and the gospel to a people gathered. But notice very carefully what takes place, how the scene now begins to progress. Verse 11, and there was a woman, and and, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Now again, this is happening simultaneously. Luke is painting the picture for what took place in the synagogue. Jesus is in the act of explaining and expounding the word of the Lord. People are listening and spellbound. Uh, Some are seething, and we see that in the response of the Pharisee as he responds to the activity of Jesus. But everybody's listening, and everybody's engaged in the exposition of the word. During this time in the synagogue, like in a room just like we're looking at right now, we could consider that there is a woman over there in that corner where none of us are located. On the floor, with a disabled spirit, a spirit of disability, of which she is born for 18 years. We're going on. We're listening to the sermon. We're we're listening to the engagement. We're considering, either positively or negatively, what we're not considering, the woman over in the corner with the spirit of disability for 18 years. None of us are concerned about that. But notice verse 11 and 12 again, as Luke shows us, our Lord is very much concerned with it. Verse 11, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years, going on during the sermon. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And Jesus saw her, and he called over to her and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Now, I want you to notice something very very carefully about the text. There's a detail in there that we would really be worse off if we missed this detail. It's so significant in the drama of the text. Notice very carefully how the movement of Jesus' engagement with the woman went in verse 12. We have the description of the woman's disability in verse 11, but notice the work of our Lord in verse 12. He saw her and he called her over. This is a significant movement in the text because, again, he could have walked over to her, right? Remember the first piece we've dealt with this morning. He is owning the room. He is in the front. He is doing the preaching. There is a woman over there of a spirit of disability, and he could have walked over to her and mixed and mingled within a larger setting of people, walked over to her. Now, sure, would people look over? Would they be like, what is he doing? Where is he going? What's going on over there? Of course, his movement was spellbounding. Yes, but he doesn't. 
for maximum effect. He's here. People are looking here. He calls her over here to him. She is front and center now in the synagogue. Again, he's typically not trying to get out of awkwardness or confrontation. He creates the awkwardness or the driving tension to confront what we naturally disregard or the blind spots that we naturally have. He seeks to confront. So he, look at very carefully again, verse 12, when he saw her, he called her over. Again and again throughout Luke's gospel, we have dealt with it, whether it's been raising people from the dead, a withered hand, someone with a, a, a hemorrhage disability, um, someone who has been blind again and again throughout Luke's gospel. Our Lord demonstrates that what society and those of higher status disregard as of no value, he flips the switch and he shows that in his grace and mercy he prizes he not only prizes, but he seeks after. He nourishes, he heals, he saves, and he empowers such a vessel of disability. Again and again and again. You remember the man who cried out, Jesus of Nazareth, if you would, I could be healed. If you want to, you can do it. You remember his response wasn't be healed. It was I want to be healed again and again. It isn't simply that he can or that he does, but that he demonstrates his desire to seek, to nourish, to heal, to save and empower that which is weak and broken. Think about this great reversal just for a moment of how we simply prize and value what is strong, what is capable, what is able. At every level of our lives as humans, we prize that which is strong, capable, and able. But what we see in this text very importantly speaks to the great reversal that our Lord prizes those things that are weak and humble. How so? Consider the woman's weakness just for a moment. Consider physically the great weakness and the deficit that this woman is in physically. Notice verse 11, how she is described. She had a disabling spirit or a disability for 18 years. What was the mark of her disability burden for 18 years? This doesn't necessarily mean that she was 18 years old, right? At some point, we just don't know the woman's age, but we do know the burden she bore physically, unable to stand erect, was for a period, Luke reports, this period lasted 18 years. Now, how he knew that, if he interviewed the woman, if he spoke with her, again, in chapter one, Luke makes clear, I made use of all the records I absolutely could. He did follow-up interviews, putting together what is reliable and certain regarding your faith. He offers you his gospel as a sure stamp of the work and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he marks out here that this woman was disabled this way for 18 years of her life at this point when Jesus began to interact with her. Now consider for 18 years, she experienced being bent over. Um, he, he further kind of clarifies, in other words, she could not fully straighten herself up for 18 years. Now, the text clearly is not a medical book. 
So we don't know really what ailed her as far as what was burdening her physically, what we might diagnose it, in other words. But in my time of study, many folks seem to suggest um, that if we put together what's going on with the woman physically in her symptoms from those brief, yes, but maybe telling comments, there was some sort of compression of the cervical spinal cord. Again, maybe some of you are in medical in the room. Maybe you know what this is or how we now currently go through spinal fusion or something to fix it. Nonetheless, what we're looking at is most likely a woman who is cervical spinal cord is compressed. What does this mean for her quality of life? Just to get the sense where we gathered to hear Jesus teach for better or for worse. Not to worry about the disabled woman over in the corner who can't straighten up. But as the text says, Jesus saw her. Her quality of life at this point, and and it would be worse because we can think of how we would control these symptoms here in a 21st Western society, but if you put it back in the first century, this this would just be uh, horrifyingly difficult. Um, With a, a cervical spinal cord type of compression, it brings a level of imbalance to the individual, they, they can't, even if they were to stand erect, they cannot walk on balance. There is a loss of bladder and bowel control. There is a weakness which then leads toward paralysis. This is so significant as we look at this woman of weakness. This is the quality of her life. But not only is she physically weak and burdened and set about by various difficulties, difficulties, again, I can't even paint with words that would be so difficult to manage in a first century context. What would it be like to not have bowel control in the first century? Much different than the 21st. Um, But it's not just the physical burden that she's bearing this day at the synagogue. There is a spiritual dynamic as well that is just as real as what's taking place in physical frailty. How so? Look at the description of what's going on with her spiritually, and it kind of combines the spiritual and the physical into one overall experience. Look down at verse 16 uh, as our Lord responds to the controversy of, you know, should he have done this tremendous work and miracle on the Sabbath or not? We're skipping that for now, but look at verse 16 as he describes a woman's spiritual state. Verse 16, and ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, should she not be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So if we combine the statement here of Satan bound her for 18 years, and then we jump up and we combine it with the description earlier in the text of verse 12, that, um, or, or verse 11, that it was a disabling spirit we find out that, again, she was oppressed by the demonic assault. So so she has this total dynamic. Think about it, less sanitary. Surely, if a woman is broken in body and assaulted by demon in spirit, could we not fairly assume this woman suffers with spiritual depression and despair? Do you think, no, 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 it's more sanitary than that. She just had some physical ailments. And we'll just skip over it and think, what a tremendous miracle. Own it for a moment. She's a true human. For 18 years, she was 
bearing this physical load. And it wasn't just enough. I mean, I don't know if you've ever hurt yourself physically in some way that then gives way to a bad attitude, right? I mean, do you not see the immediate interconnectedness to your physical life, to your spiritual well-being, and a negative physical life to a negative spiritual being? I mean, you are a whole integrated person. Here's this woman suffering tremendous difficulty for 18 years. I can't stand erect. I can't walk on balance. I have no control of my bowels. And on top of that, I'm under spiritual oppression by demonic influence. The burden this woman bore, and everybody gathered at Sabbath to hear from the word of the Lord, and she couldn't stand erect over in the corner. It's important to note that, um, because this comes into play in just a moment as we move forward in the text, but her healing, as you'll notice there, we don't go piece by piece, but you'll notice her healing is never spoken of as an exorcism. So we don't see that this woman, there, there is a distinction here between oppression of spiritual uh, demonic influence and possession, where indeed they dwell within a human being. This is significant to note about this woman specifically. Indeed, she is spiritually oppressed. But her healing doesn't speak of an exorcism anywhere. So there is a sense of oppression without possession of demonic influence in this woman's life. All in all, she is a broken woman. You see, in conclusion toward her symptoms of a woman of weakness, if we take that picture of what she's suffering that day in the synagogue, she is, by all accounts, at the synagogue gathering, she is a woman insignificant and otherwise socially invisible. It doesn't take but a moment to reflect upon our own lives in consideration. You don't have to be so broken to feel yourself to be rather insignificant in days of discouragement. You don't need to not be able to stand erect to feel like you're really nothing that people care much about. The loneliness, isolation, you don't need to have your whole neighborhood basically treat you as invisible in order to feel yet spiritually and emotionally at times in your own life as a person who is insignificant and invisible to others. And this is what's significant about the text in that place. If you've ever been in that place emotionally and spiritually, physically, combining spiritually together, feeling absolutely insignificant and someone who is invisible to others, lonely and burdened, set about by a number of weaknesses, you have to stay tuned to see this piece in the text. Look at verse 12 once again. You can't skip the details. It's right there at the very beginning of verse 12. Jesus saw her. You see the significance of that. No one else in the synagogue cared. 
She was a woman utterly insignificant and visible to others, but not to the Lord. He's in the midst of preaching and teaching, verse 10. And there is a woman there who is listening and goes unnoticed by everyone but one. Jesus saw her. You see, our Lord proves over and over again that as displayed in this woman of deep infirmity and hardship, His entire purpose in coming is to set such captives free, to heal, to save, and to nourish those who are weak and know they are in need. We're here judging your sermon. He's like, I'm here healing this woman. No, we're going to hear and dissect and debate what you did on the Sabbath. I'm here to bring wholeness, nourishment, and salvation to the lost. I'm to take that which is weak and bind it up that it might be made strong. I'm to visit that who, those who seem invisible to others, seemingly insignificant and dismissed, and raise them up to a place of peace and comfort. Look with me one last reference back to chapter 4 just so you can see how this gospel is unfolding. And the very mission that Jesus said is why he has come is such an instance as this in the synagogue of chapter 13. Ver, uh, chapter 4, if you're there, again, I'll start in verse 16 so you can see he's doing in 13 just what's recorded in 4. He is fulfilling his mission of saving, nourishing, and empowering those who are weak and in need. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and he was, uh, and he, uh, and he was, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up and he read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. Now, again, keep in mind this woman of infirmity for eighteen years. And he read this: "The spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor." He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. And here's our woman of chapter 13, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is exactly what he is doing with this woman front and center of the synagogue floor. A woman, once again, largely unnoticed and invisible, is now, according to our text, he called her over. She is now front and center on the floor in the synagogue for maximum effect. And in her, our Lord displays what awaits all who hope in him. Look at verse 13. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. It's significant to note as we move toward winding down our time that this woman, though she was disabled and burdened and set about by every kind of weakness you can imagine bearing, she was not defined by her disability. 
as we'll see in the text in the last couple of moments, she was defined by her faith. No, she's just a woman who can't stand erect and has no control over her bodily functions. Just ignore her. She'll go away for a while. Let's listen to the sermon. She was not defined by Jesus. She was not defined by that disability. She was defined by her faith. Not defined by her weaknesses. Not defined by her social status. She was defined before him by her faith. This is significant to each of us. We all at some point wish we were doing or were being someone other than we are. Fearing that we're defined by something other than what we wish to be defined by. Notice this carefully, that this woman was not defined by her disability in the eyes of the Lord, but she was defined by her faith. How so? Let me just give you three pieces in the text to see. Indeed, the woman was a believer. We'll look at verse 1. It's the most obvious one, or sorry, verse 10.1. How do we see that the woman indeed was defined by her faith? Well, quite simply, it's kind of somewhat kept and obvious here, but look at verse 10. He was in the midst of teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. She was there. <laughs> what did she go to the, to the uh, synagogue for on Lord's Day? To hear from the word of the Lord. A woman set about by every imaginable weakness joins with David. As I read for you earlier, Psalm 119.81. What was this woman's hope to get to the synagogue on Sabbath, for my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in what? I hope in your word. The instrumental means of the word of God that nourished the woman of tremendous difficulty in life. She made her way, though she might not stand erect, though she might be off balance, though she might have no control, she made it to the synagogue on Sabbath for my hope is in your word. That speaks to her disability. It speaks to her spiritual oppression. She is nourished upon the word of the Lord. Look at the way our Lord speaks of her as a daughter of belief in verse 16. How do we know she's defined by belief and not by disability? Our Lord makes it clear in the entire presentation. And most explicitly in verse 16. He argues to the people who think they're sons of Abraham. And in John, you remember the great exchange. Hey, Abraham is our father. The Pharisees to Jesus. Abraham's our father. And he says what to them? Your father is the devil. That's a far cry from Abraham. So here, Jesus appeals to them. How dare you help this woman of disability on the Sabbath? How dare you perform this miracle? Who cares? And he's got her right in front where nobody can miss. Come over to me. How long do you think it took her to come to him? No one missed it. That's why he had her come. And then he says to these who think they're spiritually minded, to those who know the law, he appeals to them. Verse 16, Ought not this woman... Right here on the floor in front of you. Ought not this woman of disability, a daughter of Abraham, 
be healed on the Sabbath. The identity of the woman of which our Lord withholds from the Pharisees. He provides and privileges to this woman who is here on Sabbath at the synagogue to hear from the word of the Lord. He pronounces a privilege upon her, indeed identifying her with who? A daughter of Abraham. I long for your salvation. This woman, I hope in your word. And the third aspect that we see, indeed, that disability didn't define her, but her faith did. We see in verse 13, and he laid his hands on her. What an amazing moment in the synagogue. <laughs> what an amazing moment. And there are two responses in the text that clarify this woman's place in salvation history. Look at the two responses in this amazing moment. Jesus lays his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And look at her response. Oh, man, I wait for your salvation. Look at her experience. She glorified God. There was no wavering. Her hope had waited upon him. Her faith deeply rested in him. And he brought her all that she had waited for in that moment. He healed her just as he had promised. And she did what? All glory goes to you. Look at the other response that is written in such a way to contrast a woman of faith versus those who are not children of Abraham and are not marked by faith. A ruler of the synagogue, right? The, the guy in charge. Hang on. Technical foul. He was indignant. Why? He didn't glorify God for what took place, this woman standing erect, who received what she had awaited for. Uh, who cares about that? He was indignant. He was outraged because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. But notice how his confrontation turns to the people, right? He's probably had a few run-ins along the way, or somebody else had a run-in with the Lord. So he doesn't appeal to like, I'm going to take you down a peg or two here and now. No, there's no chance. So he turns to the people. Who's been here week in and week out? Who are you going to listen to, this guy or me? You know, one of those kind of moves. Notice, the, the debate becomes enraged, and he appeals to the crowd. How dare he heal on the Sabbath? This is written in contrast to the woman who said, glory be to God. Salvation has come in the Lord. Two responses to the work of our Lord. In application and conclusion, let me ask you this. If you think through the text with me and you meditate on it maybe a little bit more this week, do so with a thought in your mind as joining with the woman in the text, being a person of infirmity and weakness. There are none of us in here who are not marked by weakness. There's none of us in here who are not marked, who, who are marked in such a way as to never feel invisible to others or to feel insignificant in ways we wish we were more significant. There's not one of us in here who don't have those emotions. So join in the text as you read it with a woman of infirmity with this thought upon your mind. What are my ailments? Okay, I'm not disabled. I'm not, as I can tell, spiritually oppressed by a demon's influence. 
but it doesn't mean I don't hurt. It doesn't mean I don't desire. It doesn't mean I don't have longings for deliverance. What are my ailments? What is the sin that I bear? What is the hardship that is emotionally burying me? What is the burden that I'm bearing? Then let me ask you this. Like the woman, do you have burdens that leave you feeling so isolated, unremarkable, even before God? Not just horizontally, but vertically. Do you have sin that has an isolating effect? Do you have insecurities that have an isolating effect? Do you feel not only am I not doing well here, I'm just not doing well here. Because might I remind you of 12a? Jesus sees you. You're not invisible to him. You're not insignificant to the only one that truly does matter. And I'm not saying that in a trite way. Your identity as a believer is bound in him to whom you are not invisible. Will you then, is my last question of the morning, will you then, will I, will each of us, like the woman, in response, will we hear him call through the word of the Lord? Will we hear him call and come over to him? Receiving forgiveness, washing, righteousness, joy, and peace and consolation. Jesus told her, come over here. I see you. Will we do the same? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text and the importance of your word. Hearing your call through it, give us grace to submit, to repent of holding sin. Give us the nourishment of our own insecurities. Overcome them with peace and consolation. Help us, Lord, be pilgrims who are faithful on the way as we await your great return. Thank you for this moment that this woman experienced of tremendous physical healing and spiritual healing as well. The nourishment that only you can provide. Lord, provide it yet again in this hour through the nourishment of your word to each and everyone who is here. Let us examine. But as we examine, let us hear your call to draw near. Let us feel the gaze of divine peace that you see us and you love and you care and you desire to nourish and empower. Let us not be ignorant to turn from you, but give us the grace to draw near to you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.